Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Wee Zhou. I'm the host for this show. In my daytime job, I'm the chief financial officer for Binance. For those who do not know, Binance is a blockchain company and operates one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. We also are helping to build a bigger blockchain ecosystem with other key initiatives and investments, including Binance Labs, the Blockchain Charity Foundation, Binance Info Academy, as well as Trust Wallet and Travel by Bit. For me, I joined Binance from the traditional financial world, where I served as the chief financial officer for several Chinese and American companies, two of which were listed on NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. I started off my career in investment banking with Goldman Sachs. From my personal background, I was born in China, grew up in the U.S., and did university at Harvard. After graduation, I pretty much moved around Asia and the U.S. between Hong Kong, Beijing, L.A., and Singapore. Since I've joined Binance, I basically have witnessed a lot more people who are becoming more and more interested in blockchain and cryptocurrency. And that interest comes not just from simply buying Bitcoin or trading, but from more a deeper interest. So what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. One of the first guests I talked to is Helen Hai. She came from a social development and charity background. I will also be spending time with people from politics, entertainment, gaming, advertising, just a variety of background, and talking about blockchain technology. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights. On how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer: all opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice. As you will be solely responsible for your own investment. So thank you everyone for、uh, for joining us.、Uh, this is we. I'm here with Thomas Lee, who's the founder and the head of、uh, Fundstrat, which is a very unique research institution that has been dedicated to analyzing all things crypto from a valuation perspective. Tom come joins the blockchain community from a very long background in equity research on Wall Street, and we're really happy to have Tom here to educate myself as well as our listeners on his thoughts on all things from a valuation perspective. How do you value things within the blockchain space? Thank you for joining us. So, Tom, I think、um, a lot of our listeners don't see you commenting on CNBC and Bloomberg about all things Bitcoin, but I don't think they know sort of your background in terms of your previous life before blockchain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,、um, I'd be glad to. So, I've been doing research for financial markets since 1993, so over 26 years, and. You know, in 1993, the reason I pursued equity research was, you know, I went to Wharton as an undergraduate to business school at the University of Pennsylvania. But financial services and especially sort of stock research was a very personal interest of mine, and and part of it was because my father was a doctor and fairly successful, but I feel like he got exploited by his brokers. Um, with his retirement savings, so you know, I think growing up, there was always this、uh, ongoing. 
feeling that his brokers were stealing money from him or, you know, getting him to buy things that lost him money. And so as a consequence, you know, he was very suspicious and skeptical of financial markets. And so I went to business school. I wanted to be a business guy. And I think, you know, the reason I was really attracted to research was it's kind of an area where you can be um, truly authentic. You know, um, you know, in stock research, you really only benefit if you can help your clients um, make money. So it's very personal for me to do financial services and stock research. Um, but it was also really a, a big interest of mine. So I, I was really lucky. I mean, I, I think luck is it you know plays a huge role in everyone's career. But I was very lucky because in 1993 I graduated from Wharton and I got a job uh, covering the telecom industry in in the equity research area, which was booming at this. So telecom was just beginning to get deregulated in the U.S. Plus, wireless communications was a brand new industry. You know, at the time there were only 34 million cellular phone users um, in the world. Today there's five billion. But uh, fortunately, my boss gave me a lot of independence, and I started to sort of write about the wireless industry. Where did you start off your career? My first job was at Kidder Peabody, which oh, wow. is um, it's a defunct broker-dealer, but it was one of those original white shoe uh, investment banks, but was really known for great stock research. Mm-hmm. And I spent a couple years there, and then I went to Smith Barney, which was another, you know, really well-known stock shop, but which got acquired or which ended up merging with Solomon Brothers. So I essentially, people consider me like a Solomon Brothers guy. <laughs> and I did that for a few years and did a lot of IPOs. But then uh, in 1999, I moved to JP. So you were right there um, at the cusp of the, uh, of the dot-com boom in 95, uh, yes. 97-ish with the Netscape IPO and all. Exactly. So I, I was in the middle of the massive internet boom, telecom boom, wireless boom, um, raising a lot of money for a lot of companies. And, you know, my uh, boss at Solomon Brothers is Jack Grubman, who was uh-huh. at the time one of the most famous uh, telecom analysts. And I... I think one of the lessons I learned back then was one as a young person, cause I, I, I was again, very lucky. I, I became a managing director at Solomon brothers uh, before the age of 30. So I was one of the youngest managing That's directors amazing. at Solomon. Yes. Um, was that being young when there's new technology is a huge advantage because I was able to sort of see this industry with fresh eyes, you know, like um, older folks and my clients who are in their 40s kind of viewed wireless as a sort of a hobby business or something the telecoms were going to eventually make for free because they wanted to protect their long distance and landline business. And similarly, you know, Internet, which is booming at the time, was kind of viewed as like this uh, a business that made absolutely no sense because a lot of the incumbent players and a lot of the investment bankers kind of didn't understand how large companies like Walmart, Sears would give away their business to these new internet startups. <clears throat> so I think, uh, you know, being a young person, we, I could really see the utility, but I think one of the smart things I did back then was I never really tried to pick winners and losers. So I think, you know, my advantage being young at the time was to realize that 
look, the landscape was changing, but it was, you know, I, I had no idea who was going to actually be the ultimate winner. But at, at that point, um, I, I think you had the same group of Wall Street and institutional investors who've been buying. I remember GE was the was the big buy back then, right? GE, Walmart, IBM, even to a certain yeah, degree. Cisco. Yeah, Cisco, the networking folks, the infrastructure guys, right? And sort of like the internet companies really didn't take off. I think it was maybe like maybe it was the Amazon IPO. It was basically sort of like you put. You can buy anything, right? And then uh, Excite and all the search engines and uh, and the browsers and all, all of that. Yes. And, 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 you know, looking back, it was a very confusing time. It was, it was, because, um, it was confusing and exciting because I remember I, so I started off my undergrad. I did my undergrad at Harvard. I started my off my undergrad in 1997. And then uh, that's when, when we, we, we were having trading competitions in my dorm with our fake portfolios. <laughs> and then we were, I remember like AMD, Intel, Cisco... AOL, those are sort of the big names that, that we looked at every single day. Yeah, um, that's right. But the thing is, is I just remember, because one of the biggest trends that I see here as a little bit relevant back then is that there was an alternative in terms of career choices for the first time for, uh, for, kids, at, like, for, for kids at smart schools. Because before, I remember it was basically consulting, banking, or grad school. Doctors, lawyers, bankers, or consultants. Those are probably like the top four professions, choices. And then but there's this thing that you can go to Silicon Valley or you can do a startup in your dorm. That was when college campuses were plugged into Ethernet for the first time, sort of like 95 yeah, yeah. to 99 sort of ish. So that was when you, we first sort of had the first wave of dorm startups. That, that's absolutely right. I know at Solomon Brothers uh, with their recruiting classes, you know, they were trying to hire uh, analysts from mm-hmm. undergrad. They relaxed uh, the dress codes and they <laughs> genuinely felt they were competing with startups, you know, that they wanted to make, hey, you could be doing a two-year analyst program at an investment bank. It's just as cool as working at a startup. So you're absolutely right. They, they were competing for, for mind share and talent at that time because people just saw all the opportunity in the dot-coms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one parallel that I kind of draw to today is that like sort of because because uh, I haven't been back on campus for a while, but just from talk, looking at where my classmates were, a lot of them are at Facebook and Google, and I feel like these are kind of like the like in addition to working at investment banks, I think working at a Facebook or Google is sort of like on par with trying to get a job at Morgan Stanley or Goldman today. That's right. I mean, exactly. If someone's a CS major today, you know the the top tier opportunity uh, out of school is to work at Facebook and Google. You know, I mean, that's the, that, those are the jobs people who are computer science majors really covet. But, but the thing is, is that now it just feels like the alternative, because back then, I think um, even when the startup, it was, I think it was predominantly a US based phenomenon with some in Asia, primarily, I think in Japan, almost not really in China. Even if it is China, it's precluded to Chinese overseas students in the US that are going back to China. I remember back in the day in like the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it didn't really exist, I think, in a continent like in India or like in in Europe to a lesser degree. But I feel like within the blockchain space now, the pervasive of it on a global basis, it's very, very different. I think that's probably something that I've seen that's very, very different. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'd say that that's exactly right. I, You know, in the 90s, um, there was kind of a US-centric development, as you point out, because even though Japan had a lot going on with, NTT Docomo and uh, H, you know, HSPDA was their standard and PDC, Personal Digital <laughs> Cellular. Uh-huh. Um, those standards weren't adopted in the U.S. 
and they weren't part of the European, um, you know, development protocols, you know, which was GSM. So, you know, you had really regional development, but, you know, the bulk of sort of those internet stories, uh, startups were all US-based in Silicon Valley. And you're right, today, I, I wouldn't make that same observation. I, you know, I think Asia is really one of the big centers of innovation for crypto. And can you walk me through that sort of like, you know, I think we all remember the NASDAQ, the boom and then the crash and then sort of the revitalization of tech becoming more household names on sort of Wall Street and from a research. How did you navigate that in the subsequent years? Yes. Um, so it was a long enough period where Internet and tech was doing so well that people started to believe it was an everyday occurrence, you know, because um you know, the, the tech boom and internet boom really started, let's say, 95, 96, and it, and it lasted nearly five years. So for five years, anybody could buy a stock in tech and very likely triple their money, um, you know, within three months. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as an analyst, I used to get complaints from our salespeople because they'd be like, oh, Tom, you know, you got a buy rating on the stock, but you only have 20% upside. They're like, we can get 20% in a week. Why would I buy the stock? So, yeah, the institutional community got really accustomed to making uh, ridiculous amounts of money. And, of course, it created a bubble. And I think at the time, again, you know, being young, I didn't have necessarily a lot of foresight. But I did have, you know, two things that was uh, really helpful to me. One was I had fresh eyes so I could see how there was a lot of disruption taking place. But the second was I, I had a background as a finance major at Wharton. So to me, I, I could see that there was a huge variance between what uh, these stocks were valued at and how I would traditionally value companies. So I, I knew something was kind of, didn't make a lot of sense, but I was also kind of young enough to realize, hey, look, um, there's something big changing here. And I, again, I feel very lucky because at the bubble peak, I, I knew something was a little odd because, you know, again, I was at Solomon Brothers and just moved to J.P. Morgan. And I think to me, what really struck me was there were a lot of people making a lot of money so quickly, but they didn't really understand why they were doing so well. So mm-hmm. I think it was uh, the lack of self-awareness. And um, I think it maybe personally shielded me because at least I, I felt something was uh, didn't make as much sense. And looking back, you know, the names that people really thought were going to be the big winners uh, didn't ultimately turn out to be the survivors. You know, I mean, I think very few people would have picked Amazon as a long-term winner, mm-hmm. uh, but that was obviously one of the big names to survive. I think people were much more interested in things like, we were talking about like Urban Fetch, which was like local delivery or like, you know, pet, pets.com. And, uh, you know, it was a... It was a really strange set of stocks people thought would survive, and it turns out none of them did. Uh-huh. Or, or, or uh, barnesandnobles.com. <laughs> Correct. That's right. <laughs> so from sort of covering internet and then traditional equity, how did, you, how did you sort of make the move into blockchain and Bitcoin? Or how, how did that migration happen or evolution take place? From technology, which is my sort of background at J.P. Morgan, from 2000 to 2003, a lot of my companies that I covered began to have financial problems. Mm-hmm. And so I started to do research on capital structure and bankruptcies. And in fact, at the time, 
JP Morgan had just opened a uh, Mumbai office. So they were outsourcing research uh, out in the Far East. And I worked with a big sort of legion of uh, seven analysts out there who were combing through bankruptcies. And it turns out we studied like 2,000 bankruptcies at the time. And, and I kind of came to the conclusion that stocks that are in bankruptcy under the right conditions are massive equities, you know? So we wrote this report called Chapter After Chapter 11, um, which was one of the first ever on Wall Street research on bankruptcy, post-reorgs, post-reorg stocks. So, so one of the original big data analysis and equity research. Correct. And uh, in fact, uh, Professor Altman at Columbia liked our research so much, he uh, heavily actually quoted our research in some of his books and studies. Mm -hmm. And so JP Morgan asked me to say, hey, Tom, in addition to doing wireless, do you, would you be considered doing small cap strategy because bankruptcy research really falls into small cap strategy? So I said, sure. So I was writing research in two categories. And then in 2007, our chief equity strategist uh, left and went to another firm. And they asked me if I wanted to go from being a small cap strategist to being the chief equity strategist of the firm. So I said, sure. You know, it's, a, it's something new. So I became the head strategist at J.P. Morgan, and, and that's in 2007, which was, of course, a, cr a crazy time to be covering global markets. Around 2009, our FX team at J.P. Morgan started to talk about FX markets, but then John Norman had mentioned uh, some, you know, something about Bitcoin. You know, I'm an equity guy, and he's running from an FX perspective, and Around 2012, you know, he's started writing some ongoing research, but he, you know, he kind of concluded that eventually Bitcoin probably becomes a currency pair. So he thought it was something that was going to be real enough that people would write about. Mm -hmm. But the caveat was, you know, he thought that the addressable market for that was essentially, you know, dark web, Silk Road, uh, you know, drug dealers. And so it was something I, as, as a strategist, I didn't pay much attention to. But, you know, come 2014, I left JP Morgan to start my own independent research firm called Fundstrat. You know, we started to sort of write thematic research. And it's really there that we began to explore crypto, not as a currency, but really just as a technology. And I think that's when our eyes were really open, because I think the first time my team and I really spent time looking at Bitcoin, we realized, look, first of all, this is a pretty ingenious solution for solving a lot of the problems with, you know, double spend and fraud and encryption. But it was also, you know, arguably a pretty good argument for digital gold because of its scarcity. Mm -hmm. And so that was our original sort of vector and approach into writing about Bitcoin. And, you know, since then, we've been writing, you know, to the extent we can, you know, ongoing research, really thinking about Bitcoin, not only as a sort of a technology that's really important from a sort of helping re-architect the financial system, right? I think at the end of the day, it's probably one of the tr blockchain and cryptocurrencies are one of the real true alternatives to really replumb financial services, which is a very oligopolistic business. But we also think it's it's going to ultimately emerge as a as a true asset class. Before we we sort of jump in a little bit, can you let us know a little bit about Fundstrap? This is your own research house that you founded in uh, in 2012, 13 ish, and can you give us a little bit overview of of this business today? Yes. Um, so Fundstrat is an independent research firm. The name Fundstrat is a combination of the word fundamental 
strategy, you know, and that's really our approach. You know, we're a bottoms up independent research firm. We write about uh, markets, uh, including uh, policy research, you know, so government policy, our head of policy is Tom Block, who was head of JP Morgan's government, government relations for 25 years. We write technical analysis, uh, which is led by Rob Slimer. He's our TA. He came from RBC Capital Markets. We have quantitative research, which comes from Sam Doctor, who came with me from JP Morgan. And then I focus on portfolio strategy, which is really thematic work. Um, and again, I'm from JP Morgan. We have clients uh, in 16 countries. Um, almost all of our clients are solely hedge funds and mutual funds and uh, family offices. So it's primarily an institutional business. I, I think that's our footprint today. Five years from now, I think we're gonna be much more broker friendly, individual investor friendly, because you know that that's really my passion again, because uh, again, you know, to me, I kind of want to democratize research. You know, I think of my father and I always try to write research so that my father could understand what I'm saying. You know, that's mm -hmm. part of the sort of ethos of what we do. One of the things we say here at Binance is uh, DYOR, do your own research. Yes. People ask, like, you don't have to buy it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's sort of the, uh, the gist, right? Yes, that's right. And, oh, and yeah. you know, with crypto, it's especially true because it's, you know, it's a hyper volatile asset class, right? I mean, in the, tr in the long term, it's rising, but in the short term, it's a lot tougher to sort of understand short term price changes in crypto than it is in equities or futures or bonds or credit. Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in right here in terms of like a couple of the themes that at least I have seen is that like, like one of the th key things that you've mentioned from back then is sort of like, how do people make bets on the sector without having to go out and pick individual winners? I think that's probably the hardest thing, right? Because I think one of the things that you just mentioned before was that a lot of the winners that, that, that everyone sort of had consensus on back then didn't really pan out. Right. Whereas, you know, Correct. whereas like guys like Amazon, which is kind of like, you know, one one of someone in the pack, you know, ultimately became a winner. But as a sector, it grew. Right. And, and, and I think from an investor's perspective, you're like, OK, I really love the sector, but it's really going to be really hard for me to pick out winners. So what should I do as an investor then? Yes. And I think that's a really important um, nuance to appreciate because. Most people, when they buy stocks, generally want to get their stock selection percentage correct, you know, 50% of the time or 60, right? So their idea is, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to use my skills to try to pick winners half the time. But when you're talking about a hyper growth industry um, where there's rapid evolution, then that approach actually typically fails because it's impossible to pick winners and losers. And so one of the things that we highlight within our research for our clients is that when you look at sort of 10-year uh, thematic trades, whether it's the 1980s or the 1990s or the 2000s, getting the right vector right, so you know, identifying a hypergrowth area allows you to, to be correct only 5% of the time. You know, so you could have 95% of your picks turn go to zero, but those 5% ideas generate sufficient return that you're actually beating the overall market. And, and so I think that that's true with crypto, that um, 
you know, today in rough terms, you know, there's only at most, I think generously, 5 million wallets, maybe 50 million, but really 5 million true users of crypto globally. And yet there's 5 billion uh, Visa and MasterCard wallets. So there's a thousand mm -hmm. next increase happening in people who are using crypto every day that's a 1 million times opportunity for the market cap of crypto. So I think people who buy crypto shouldn't try to say, hey, I know which protocol is going to be the winner. They should sort of approach it, as you said, through a basket and realize that, hey, look, 5% might be the long-term winners, but the percentage gain they're going to generate is so big that uh, you're, going to, you're going to have done well as an asset. That's a really good point because it's sort of like it's sort of like VC investing then, right? Like you have one Uber or one Facebook in your portfolio and that makes up for all the other dollars that you might have invested in. That's right. In fact, I was talking with our a client about this tonight that you know, you could have had made 400 investments, but your one investment in Uber generated so much return that you you didn't care what happened to the other 399 investments. And then in terms of like one stat that you mentioned is super interesting is basically right now in the world, there's maybe, you know, 5 million active wallets, right? Just call it those are and and visa visa vis sort of like, you know, bank accounts or v, what is it? What you said visa or MasterCard is, you know, 5 billion market size for that or 5 million, Correct. 5 billion accounts. So, so I mean, the, the, the potential, right. the potential there is, is tremendous then, if you think of it, just, just, That's right. and, and that the use case there is just purely wallet as a storage and a payment solution outside of the other um, potentials. That's exactly right. And, you know, and in 10 years, because of population growth, there'll probably be 7.5 billion wallets, you know? So even though there's only 5 billion today, the addressable market is still growing so that in 10 years at 5% a year, it's 50% bigger. And I agree because at the end of the day, the most successful cryptocurrencies or digital assets have been the ones that have been the most useful, you know, the ones that are being used every day by people. So it's proof that if, if the whole market is going to grow, it's going to grow the value of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And then I'll pop sort of like two questions. One is a continue this sort of like this thought analysis on the size. And this is something that you and I chatted a little bit briefly about is um, is something that I mentioned, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, is it goes back to sort of the crypto wallet idea that you mentioned is which is that I think you mentioned there's like, you know, five billion cell phone users, there's probably more cell phones yeah. out there in the world than bank accounts. And it's very natural to think your cell phone then becomes that wallet and becomes that identity device that that's all in one. And the continent that has been a passion project for Binance has actually been Africa, um, with yeah. basically the, the fastest growing demographically, as well as underbanked, right, which with only about, you know, 20% have been banked to. And then from a financial inclusion perspective, the, you know, there's more probably cell phones there, ownership perspective, than, than bank accounts. There's a tremendous amount of potential there, whereas people can grow up with their first introduction to financial services, maybe crypto rather than fiat money or just traditional banks or banking cards. Because I think in, in most developed society, other than China now, is actually people are switching with, uh, with sort of the, the payments on their phone rather than using cards now. Whereas I think in Africa, maybe you don't need cards anymore. It's, everything is on, done on your, on your phone. And Correct. crypto is actually the native currency there, maybe. I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, one is, 
you know, I think banks today have excessive power relative to the services they provide to customers. You know, uh, we've done a lot of studies on this using OECD data, but banks today earn about 6% of global GDP. That's with record low interest rates. That's nearly double the percentage it was 50 years ago. So even though interest rates were double digits 50 years ago, banks make more money as a share of GDP than they did a decade ago. And yet, I don't think banks are in, in the best position to understand their customers, you know, both from a credit perspective or understanding, you know, who's a good credit and who to lend to. And uh, mobile phone companies are arguably in a better position. As you mentioned, there's, you know, one, they have a much better idea of how people use their phones and where they're using it. And even social media companies, to the extent that they're careful how they monitor customers, probably have a much better understanding of, of credit the credit profile of their customers. In fact, mm -hmm. I know one of these uh, cell phone lenders had told me that one of the single best metrics for, for default on a loan that they found was the percentage battery life remaining on the phone. And they found that customers who let their phone routinely die were the most unreliable credits. That's an amazing oh, correlation. <laughs> yeah, they said it's a 99% correlation. So basically a cell phone company can make a better decision about lending to you than a bank could. And, and as you point out, especially in countries like Africa where financial inclusion matters, you know, people are more likely to have access to advanced telecommunications than they are to advanced financial services. So I think it's really important for a sort of parallel financial system to develop that allows people to access uh, banking services you know, without risk of double spend that doesn't necessarily have to run through traditional banking architecture. Then it comes to how many of your peers on Wall Street feels the same way? And what are they doing yes. about it? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky line for us to navigate because uh -huh. I would say our clients in general are mostly, you know, in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. They've done exceptionally well financially, but that means that they're a big fan of the legacy financial system. And for the most part, for them, crypto looks like a renegade, rebellious type of financial architecture that's somewhat rogue from a regulatory perspective. And, and they like, most of them really want to see crypto fail. Now, of course, they'll change their minds because, you know, anytime you see a new technology, incumbents would like to see the new entrant fail. But I think if that's the case, then has sort of like the, re the rally in Bitcoin and the resilience of Bitcoin, at least from, as you mentioned before, as a new asset class perspective, has greed taken over yet? Or are we just sort of at the beginning yeah. of the beginning? Because I think ultimately these guys, yes, yes, they want to see new things fail, but they've also been driven by greed, right? And I think that's been the constant swing between greed and fear, right? That's sort of how Wall Street operates. Has that taken over or are we about seeing the beginning of that? Yesterday, yeah. I, your comment about $10,000 Bitcoin price being the start of FOMO, that's sort of like say ranked on, on a 10 out of 10 on a greed scale, right? Yes, that's right. And, and, you know, that's exactly right. You know, at the end of the day, Wall Street, uh, if there's a known asset class and they believe they can have an edge, um, they're going to be quite interested in investing in it because, uh, you know, Wall Street has the ability to marshal a lot of resources uh, to develop either a fundamental edge or trading expertise um, and make money. So you're absolutely right. Like, you know, at the right tipping point, and it's either going to be because the, the size of the blockchain or the size of the crypto market itself, Wall Street's going to suddenly say, hey, look, uh, 
I don't care if I understand exactly what's happening, but if I can make a lot of money, let's go ahead and do it. Because, you know, that's, that's the story of credit default swaps. You know, credit default mm-hmm. swaps was originally just a spreadsheet on Excel, and it was a gambling bet, you know? Mm-hmm. And now more CDS is traded than cash bonds. But what's really going to get Wall Street interested is really Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin really is sort of central to the case. Bitcoin has to make people believe that it can achieve all-time highs because no other blockchain can survive without Bitcoin prospering. And so, you know, we published a piece in, and I'll make sure I send you a copy that says, hey, what's a way to quantify Wall Street FOMO? And, and the reason it matters is, you know, when Bitcoin fell 85% last year, Wall Street basically said, hey, Bitcoin's broken and it's going to zero. And they have good reason for that because 80% of stocks that fall 90% never recover. So in their minds, the probability of Bitcoin going to zero was essentially 80% because it had already fallen 80%. But now that Bitcoin's back to 8,000, you know, that represents, and close to 9,000, it, it's only traded at this level 5% of the days in its entire history. You know, in other words, it's, it's at a level that very few people have lost money owning Bitcoin here. And we, we set another threshold. We said, listen, FOMO really occurs when the price achieves a level that's only happened 3% of the time. So uh, in past cycles, you know, that level was $8.50 in 2011. Today, that number is 10,000 because Bitcoin's prior to today has only traded above 10,000 87 days. So if you think about like in its 10-year history, there's only less than 87 days where Bitcoin's been below 10,000. So we said, look, once it achieves this level, every institution's going to realize, look, at 10, it's likely to go back to its all-time high, which is a double. Mm-hmm. There's very few things that can double. So I think FOMO truly gets triggered once Bitcoin hits 10,000. So going from 10 to 20 is going to be fast and furious then. Correct. In fact, we wrote about this like that. If you look at past cycles, when you get to that 3% threshold, Mm -hmm. the typical surge in the next five months is 200 to 400%. So if Bitcoin somehow manages to get to 10, it's very likely going to make a run to 40,000 within five months. That's a very aggressive call. Because most people you talk to, they make, you know, five-year calls, 10-year calls, but this is a six-month call. (laughs) Yeah. So, and again, we're we're just looking at how how markets react to FOMO and it ties into the happening. That's correct. Yeah. And who knows where the world is from a political, geopolitical and economic perspective, six to 12 months from now. Correct. Yeah. In In terms of the uncertainty. Really enjoy the conversation. Really appreciate the time you've taken. From from my end, I look forward to you know meeting you either in person, either at the next conference. If there's anything you need from our end, do let us know. Great. You know, really look forward to uh, to uh, speaking again. Great. Really Thanks, Wei. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as as much I did. And if you like this show, please share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WeChat, or any other social media platforms. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Binance podcast and see you next time.